Hello, I'm Jason. You're listening to The Rewind. Each week, we take a quick look back at the latest lesson in the current sermon series at Forest Park Church, pulling out the most notable moments and powerful scriptural references that can change our perspective, our hearts, our future, and our world. Before his death in 1955, at the young age of 24 years old, the American actor James Dean starred in his second film, which is probably one of the most famous, The Rebel Without a Cause. He played a moody, troubled son of a middle-class family. But long before James Dean was a rebel without a cause, there was a young Israelite standing on a Judean hillside with the boldness and faith to step out where all others were running back. With only a few stones, a giant would fall and he would become a hero and a rebel with a cause. He's one of the best-known figures in Jewish history, and his is a life that's filled with rich happiness and intense pain. He's a leader known by many titles. He was a conqueror. He was a man following God's heart. He was a sweet singer. He was a shepherd. But he was also an adulterer and a murderer. Yet one thing remains consistent in the life of David. It was the cause that he lived his life for. And this week, we're going to consider how a shepherd became a king. Not just any king, but the most famous king in the world. And the power of cause today. He was born in a backwater town in the middle of Judea, 907 years or so before Jesus lived. During the era of the prophets, he was disadvantaged in a sense, the youngest of seven sons, only 10 generations removed from Judah, who was one of 12 of Jacob's 12 sons. He was also a descendant of Ruth, whose book in the Bible is an inspiring story, but For David, his grandmother was a famous Moabite convert. He was red-cheeked, bright-eyed, handsome young man. But his job was tending sheep. As the youngest kid in a family with a lot of brothers, it would be a long time before his leadership would be required in the family, if ever. But all that changed one day when the Lord led his prophet Samuel to come to the house of Jesse. He was coming there with expressed purpose to anoint the next king of Israel. It would be a long time before David would ever sit upon the throne of Israel. But the one thing that separated David from almost every other figure in history was that he was a man whose life had purpose. He was a person with a cause long before the cause was notable. We've been going through a series of sermons that we call Vintage. Old Testament Bible stories that teach us the reason why God did what he did in the world and also help us to understand who God is calling us to be today. These stories teach us not only about human nature, about the originality of sin, but also the grace, the love, and the mercy of our Heavenly Father. There's a lot of things about David that catch our attention, but most notably, it's probably the fact that David was a man that had a heart for God. In fact, he is chosen to be a king because he has what Saul doesn't. In 1 Samuel, the 13th chapter, God is having a conversation here with Saul. You might know the story. Saul is the king of Israel at this point, and he is kind of deciding to do the things that he wants to do. There was a time where Saul was a very different character. He was a very humble person. He was uh, from the smallest family and one of the smallest tribes of Israel. And when his name was called as next king, or the first king, rather, of Israel, 
they find him hiding in luggage. But by this point, Saul has become a very self-confident leader. And that causes problems. Because God wanted to lead his people. And God's idea and Saul's ideas were often in contrast with one another. And God comes to, to Saul this day. And he explains to Saul that his relationship with him is ending. He says this, he says in verse thir- or chapter 13 and verse 14 of 1 Samuel, he says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. There's just an inescapable theme in Scripture, isn't there? The fact that God calls us to be people who are obedient. And it's so hard for us as people because we want to do what we want to do. And and Saul is not any different, but David was different. Saul was simply not God's man, but David was. There's this interesting interaction as Samuel arrives at the house of Jesse and he steps into the living room, as I imagine it. And here the oldest son of Jesse is standing. Certainly Jesse probably assumes that if anything is needed in his house, it will be this boy who will rise to the challenge. And Samuel is equally as impressed. He sizes this young man up, and he thinks he looks like a king. He acts like a king. He carries himself like a king. He smells like a king. But God tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, he's not the guy. And then God goes on to explain to Samuel something. He says, don't look at his appearance or on his height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord doesn't see as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's David's heart for God that prepares him to be used by God. Our impressive resumes aren't what make us useful in God's kingdom. In fact, there's really nothing that we can do that is impressive. We often quote the passage of Scripture in which the Bible reminds us that our best deeds, our righteousness, is like filthy rags compared to God's version of holiness and righteousness. And yet David was the guy that was selected because, as God says, he's following my heart. The first lesson that we learn from David's life is the importance of cultivating a heart for God, and that really comes above everything else. But there's a second thing about David that's super impressive as well, and that is that there's this willingness just built into David to walk with the Spirit. The lives of David and Saul make it crystal clear that if we want to do what God wants us to do, we have to be walking in step with God's Spirit. Saul is filled with the Spirit of God, and he actually prophesies early in his public life. But his habitual disobedience causes the Spirit to have to depart from him. Now, I want to point out here that God doesn't just abandon Saul. Saul makes it impossible for God to work through him. Saul seems to be, at the end of his life, unwilling to allow God's Spirit to lead him. And it really boils back to the things that drove those two early kings of Israel. Saul became a very self-confident person. And in our culture today, we often talk about how important it is to be self-confident. And there's no self-confident, excuse me. And there's no question that confidence is important. But David had a different type of confidence. David's confidence was God-confidence. Even though David wasn't called into the house, ultimately, 
Samuel would sort through every one of David's older brothers with God's response being the same in each and every occasion. He's not the guy. He's not the guy. He's not the guy. And finally, Samuel turns to Jesse and says, do you have any other kids? And Jesse says, well, yeah, I've got this son. He's out in the pasture. He's tending sheep. And Samuel said, hey, we're not sitting down until he comes in here. And when he steps into the room, the Lord told Samuel, there's your guy. In verse 13, it says, Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And I love this language. It says, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and he went home to Ramah. Sometimes we fail to remember as Christians that even though David had this wonderful anointing of the Spirit, we have something that David could not even imagine. In David's time, the glory of God, the presence of God, still dwelt in a tabernacle, a small room in the back of that tabernacle, a room called the Holy of Holies. His Shekinah glory would rest between the two upturned wings of the, of the angels on top of the Ark of the Covenant right above the mercy seat. But God, even in that time, was longing for a day that he wouldn't be, wouldn't be shut up in a little cubicle built by human hands. In fact, God said, no longer am I going to be dwelling in a temple that's built by the human hands, but I will be with my people. They will be my people, and I will be their God. And that's what's so remarkable about that first gospel message preached by Peter when he preaches in Acts 2 and says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament tells us that we are, in fact, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we're called to honor God with our bodies and with our life. Both Saul and David were being used by the Spirit of God, but David was willing to do something Saul wasn't, and that is that David was willing to follow, obey God's commands. The reality is that it's better to walk with God than to be nine feet tall. And that's kind of the third lesson that we get from the life of David. Probably the most iconic story in the life of David has to be that moment where he's sent by his dad to go check up on the brothers. He arrives there with an animal, presumably laden down with cheeses and snacks for the boys. But when he gets there, it's time for the the battle lines to be drawn up. And the soldiers are clamoring from their tents and from their dwellings, leaving behind their breakfast dishes and going out for a serade that they had been quite accustomed to. But this was David's first time of witnessing it. You see, The Philistines, who were a powerful military force and who had technological advantage over most of the other people in Mesopotamia, had decided that rather than having a bloody battle in which people were killed on both sides and loss of life and property was immense, that it would be far cleaner and more convenient if the Israelites would simply send out a champion fighter to fight their champion. And they were doing this partially because they were supremely confident in their champion, a guy by the name of Goliath from the city of Gath, who the Bible says was nine feet tall, and it lays out his, his, uh, his description, and he sounds like an impressive brute of a fighter. When David hears uh, Goliath's tirade, however, David is strangely motivated. See, every day Goliath came out, and he mocked the people, and he mocked their God, and David was incensed at this, and he asks, what, what will we do, done for the guy who deals with this person? And, and, and everyone was so desperate to have somebody to deal with this problem that they said, hey, why don't you go talk to King Saul? And so before David knows it, he's ushered into the presence of King Saul. 
And King Saul is suspicious, probably like a lot of us would be, thinking here is a punk of a kid who thinks that he can take on a giant who is a trained warrior. And so Saul answers that way in 1 Samuel 17. He says, what makes you think that you can do anything about this? I love David's response, though, before Saul answers back. David says to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. There's a confidence there that almost at first you don't know what it's driven by. Your servant will go out and fight this Philistine. And then Saul says to David, well, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. Now, David stops here and he begins to go into a storytelling mode. And he tells Saul of a couple instances in his life, presumably among many, where he he had done some pretty extraordinary things. You might not think a shepherd would have an opportunity to prove his worth or his steel, but David, David had. Shepherding in the wild country of Judea, he had been a, a witness of both a lion and a bear who had snuck in and taken a lamb from the flock. And while maybe you or I would say it's perfectly reasonable to not go after the vicious creature and to allow him to have a snack, David was not wired that way. David went, and I love the description of that story. You can read it for yourself, but it says that he grabbed the lion by the mane, he struck him, he rescued the lamb from his mouth, and he took the lion's life. And then David brings it back to the moment there in the courtroom of King Saul. In verse 37 of 1 Samuel 17, David says, And the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, it wasn't arrogance. It wasn't self-confidence that drove David. He didn't think that he was nine feet tall and bulletproof like Goliath did. But he knew who he was walking with. He recognized that it's better to walk with God than be nine feet tall. And the thing about that faith is that it's contagious. You know the story. David is going to eventually put on Saul's armor, and he's going to realize, hey, this isn't me. And he goes out and he attacks the, the, the giant with a slingshot and smooth stones that he scoops up out of a ditch there. And it says that God brought about a great victory that day. Goliath will die by the very sword that he thought he would usher David from this life with. And that kind of faith didn't just affect David, but it affected his legacy as well. There's this part of David's life that we often fail to remember. It's the kind of closing chapter of David's story in 2 Samuel, the 23rd chapter. It's a chapter of kind of two parts. The opening part is the final words of David, which are poetic and and reference back to uh, God's promises that are going to be uh, fulfilled in the future through Jesus Christ. And we'll take a look at that as we close today. But the second half of that is this list of guys. Many Bibles will have it headed up something like David's mighty men. But the crazy part of that story is they didn't start that way. By the time we get to chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, David is on the run for his life, even though he may have married Saul's daughter and he may have been a trusted confidant in Saul's household, even though he was David's number, or Saul's rather, number one warrior and his son Jonathan's best friend, Saul's 
envy, his jealousy, his anger, and his bitterness will drive him to become an absolute madman. When he should have been driving out the enemy forces from the land of Israel and reinforcing the fortifications of its cities, Saul is too busy running around the country chasing David from cave and hole in the ground. Like the old TV show, The Fugitive, David is seen running from town to town, and King Saul and his men are in hot pursuit. In order to get some space, David would go to the extreme of hiding out in Gath, yeah, that Gath, the one that Goliath came from, in Philistia, and then he hid in some caves in different remote places in the outskirts of the land of Israel. It's at one of those moments in 1 Samuel 22 that we pick up an interesting part of the story of the life of David. It says that David left Gath and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. Imagine this for a second. You are running from a crazy, insanely spirit-possessed fellow who is the king of the nation in which uh, which you actually reside and are supposed to be the king of. And then you find yourself hiding out in a cave, accompanied by your family, which would be supportive and encouraging, and then joined by 400 malcontent, indebted, discontented, Rowdy, reckless, useless people from every tribe and nation around. You might look at this and say, if life could get much worse, I don't know how it would. But the reality is that those men are many of those who are listed in that second half of Second Samuel 23. We know, we know this because their nationalities <coughs> excuse me, are not Israeli. They come from all different kinds of countries and all different places. And if you've ever never read through that list, you you should, because it's pretty impressive. You see, David's walk with God prepared these men to walk in the power of the Lord themselves, and they did some tremendous things. As amazing as David is, he's really only a pale picture of the great champion that will come from his family be born in the city of his own birth, Bethlehem. Jesus came into the world and was also not noticed and seemed to be inconsequential. And yet through his life and his relationship with the Heavenly Father, Jesus would usher in an era that would transform the world. And those changes remain in the world to this day. You can't help but read through the final part, though, of Second Samuel 23 without noticing a name. Now, many of them you might not know. Some of them are legendary, like Benaniah, who slid into a ditch or a pit on a snowy day to fight a lion who had also slid off the trail. This is the kind of guys that David was a leader of. But the final person on that list is Uriah, the Hittite. And that reminds us of the final thing that we learn in the life of David. And that is that there is a terrible cost to sin. The ending of 2 Samuel 23 is haunting because for those of us who know that story, we know exactly what 
it's referencing. David chose to not go to war. In fact, he sent out the army and all of his mighty men to kind of do the work, and he stays back in Jerusalem and kind of rules there. But idle hands are often the devil's playground. And one night, while he is unable to sleep and he's out walking about on his roof, he happens to notice that the neighbor lady is bathing on the roof and filled with lust. He calls her over, has an adulterous affair with her, and in a few weeks' time, he is informed by her that she is, in fact, pregnant. This is a problem because this is David's friend, longtime companion, and one of the 37 mighty men. This is his wife. Bathsheba is Uriah's wife. And so David David has a, a solution for it. He, he, he has Uriah sent home, and he says, Hey, Uriah, you're such a great guy. You need a little time off too. Why don't you go home and hang out with Bathsheba? But the character that David had demonstrated to Uriah, the faithfulness that David had lived out in front of his men, had so changed these people who were not natively Israeli that that Uriah said, "I, I can't, I can't go home and 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 be with my wife when all the rest of my buddies are out on the battlefield right now, sleeping in muddy tents." And so Uriah slept on the steps of the of the palace that night, and David, with his back to the wall wrote a letter to the captain, to the commander of his army, sealing Uriah's own death. They were to put him in the most fiercest part of the battle, and when the battle was the worst, they were to back away and allow the enemy soldiers to do the dirty work of covering up David's sin. Why is this story in the Bible? Why does God seem intent on telling us all the warts and wrinkles of his people? Because God wants us to know that there is a cost to sin. All throughout First and Second Samuel, God shows us the horrible cost of sin. And that is a story that is repeated from the book of Genesis through the final concluding verses of the book of Revelation. In First Samuel, we see Eli the priest that fails to fear God. And his two sons are killed in war because of that. The Ark of the Covenant is lost and Eli himself falls over dead. Then there's Saul who fails to obey and honor God, and the kingdom is given to another man. But David's sin of Bathsheba shows this most vividly of all. Because when David takes Bathsheba and he kills her husband Uriah, he sins in so many ways, and the Lord is not silent, nor is he indifferent to them. He promises to bring the sword upon David's house, and that sword will take the lives of four of David's children. As you will notice so often in Scripture, the sins of the parents often affect their children even more gravely than they were affected themselves. Those are the sobering consequences, for sin are meant to cause us to fear falling into sin. However, God demonstrates in this story his grace and his forgiveness. God sends Nathan, David's friend and the prophet of God, to have a conversation with David. And he tells him a story of a man who had only one sheep, and it was like a child to him. He lived in his house, and his kids had a relationship with it. The man next door was very, very wealthy. But he had some out-of-town guests come, and rather than taking one of the sheep from his own flock, he chose to take one of the that one and only lamb from his neighbor. You butchered it. 
and served it to his guests. And David was incensed. He said that man should be killed, but at the very least, he should pay back tremendously more than he has taken. Then Nathan says these words, you are that man. And although David had put up a strong front, he acted like he was fine. In the Psalms, he records that his strength was drying up like the man's strength would on a hot, sunny day. His soul was empty. The sin that he was hiding was consuming and destroying him. And because David was a man whose heart was after God's heart, when confronted with his sin, no matter how hard he had tried to run from it, we find in 2 Samuel 12, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, David had sinned against a lot of people. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against his kingdom and the people of Israel. But David knew that the one that really mattered was the Lord. And Nathan says this back to David. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. It's a tremendous thing to know that our sin is forgiven. But David really didn't have that luxury. The reality is that David, like everyone else's sins in the Old Testament, were not dealt with. They were just pushed forward until the day that the perfect lamb without spot or blemish, would die on the cross and pay for his sin and ours as well. David's true repentance is matched by God's forgiveness. And in the end, God's forgiveness far surpasses any consequences we might experience. Now, consequences can and do often last a lifetime. But forgiveness lasts forever. And when we stand before God in the new heaven and new earth, our sins and their aftermath will stand behind us, and only eternal life and joy in the presence of our Creator will be ahead. As painful as the end of David's story is, it teaches us to not take the reality of God's mercy for granted, nor the damage that our sin can cause to our lives and to the lives of those who are nearest and closest to us. In his last words in 2 Samuel 23, though, David realized and understood that his life was for a much bigger cause than just himself or an earthly kingdom, and he points ahead to Jesus on a number of occasions. He calls himself the anointed of of God, of Jacob. David was the anointed because Samuel, as we had talked about earlier, had anointed him with oil, but the anointed in Hebrew is Messiah. And in Greek, it is the Christ. David is pointing to someone far greater than himself, to Christ. In fact, the significance is found in Peter's answer to Jesus when Jesus asked Peter, well, who do people say that I am? And, and Peter answers back in Matthew 16, and he says to him, well, who do you say that I am? Jesus is saying that to Peter. And Simon Peter replies, and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of a living God. Jesus is also fulfillment of of what uh, David calls the everlasting covenant. In 2 Samuel, the seventh chapter, God makes a covenant with David, and he says this. He said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There is no human figure, not Solomon, not Hezekiah, not Josiah, not the greatest kings of Israel. The best of them lived maybe 70 or 80 years, and none of them had an eternal kingdom. David, through lens of faith, is looking forward to Jesus Christ, the son of David, who is the king above all kings and who will, raise, who will reign forever and ever.